We acknowledge that we are on Treaty 6 territory, the gathering grounds of many diverse First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples, whose footsteps have marked this land and whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. Hello, welcome back to Research Recasted, the knowledge mobilization podcast. I'm Megan Miskiman, and I'm here today with Renette Schaubert, and we are joined by our guest, Leslie Sharp. Leslie is an associate professor here at McEwen, specializing in studio arts. She works in sound projection and object installation, as well as planned walks and actions with themes of climate change, animals, technology, and colonialism. Leslie has exhibited and presented her work internationally in Canada, Colombia, Finland, France, Germany, Spain, Turkey, UK, and USA, as well as in online and live streaming digital formats. Leslie has published work through Leonardo slash MIT Press, Palgrave Press, Intellect Press, and others. So go and check out some of her work there. Thank you so much for being with us today, Leslie. Thanks very much, and thank you for the land acknowledgement. You're very welcome. It is, yeah, it's just routine here for us. So absolutely. Uh, so you have been around, hey, like just by your bio alone, you've done a lot of work in a lot of places. <laughs> yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, every once in a while I look back and I think, hey, I'm I'm in Edmonton and it seems like I went through this circular route. Yeah, yeah. no kidding. No kidding. All around the world. Yeah. Uh, did you do it in 80 days, though? <laughs> well, I wish I could have. <laughs> yeah, no, no kidding. In a balloon. <laughs> no kidding. My, uh, yeah, I, my brain always wondered how, how did they use the bathroom <laughs> in 80 days oh my gosh. in a balloon, right? That's my only concern, but eh, I digress. So Leslie, you've got some exciting, uh, very unique research uh, that you have to share with us today. So can you tell us a little bit about some of it? Yeah, thank you. Well, uh, you know, I've got a long history of working as an artist, so I like to focus on more recent work often. Uh, and uh, and so I'll talk primarily about works that are, say, since I've since I've been in Edmonton, which is since 2011. And uh, and I thought I'd um, talk a little bit about my project Beak Disorder, and uh, and possibly uh, Papastu Geese Call, which was a live transmission project, and see where we get. So, um, awesome. Can't yeah. wait. I, I love that the episode is going to be primarily about birds and, and sounds <laughs> that birds make. So, <laughs> Yes, definitely. Well, um, where would you like me to start? Why don't we start with, uh, tell us a little bit about what inspired you to, I guess, start with, uh, with this type of research. Like what, what got you into, um, I guess, what got you into birds? What got you into the sounds of birds, the environment of birds, the you know, the disorders of birds now. Yeah. Um, let's start there. Like what kind of inspired you to, to go towards this? Well, it's funny. I started by doing projects that were around animal presence and the idea of me being able to understand animal presence from a remote distance through technology. So following tracked animals was where I started actually. Uh, and I did a number of um, projects and I did a residency up in Ifevik National Park up in the Yukon that allowed me to have both remote and close proximity uh, to those animals. But uh, then I was thinking of continuing that work and I was doing projects that were really about animal tracking. And I was looking at, online at migration patterns uh, for different birds. And somehow, somewhere, I found this really strange image of a beautiful little chickadee with a long distorted beak. And it was actually quite 
beautiful looking, but strange. Like, how on earth could that bird eat? Uh, was my first question. And what is that? Uh, so I went a little further and found out that it was um, a bird that was suffering from something called avian keratin disorder. And, uh, and it's widely researched, but especially up in Alaska uh, with the um, scientists at the USGS up in, in Anchorage. Uh, and there is a large, uh, large repository up in, um, uh, what's the other city in Alaska? I've been there. <laughs> to uh, Fairbanks? Fairbanks. Okay, so uh, up in Fairbanks, there actually happens to be a repository of specimens, of bird specimens uh, that have uh, been found that have had beak disorder. Hmm. So after some time, I started on this project. I went out and did field recordings of live chickadees, not really being able to see them having that disorder, uh, and, uh, and started imagining, what am I going to do with these? Uh, and so the first thing I was thinking was that perhaps I would, um, I would try to build a body with a distorted beak, and basically a kind of sculpture. And, and the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, the bodies may not be there. The beaks should be there. Uh, and so I started thinking about building all of these um, distorted beaks. And I ended up designing them in uh, a program called Rhino um, and making them into 3D printed beaks uh, and went through a number of varieties of them <laughs> uh, and, and uh, then started building an installation that would include those and include some kind of sound element. So... Um, so the first iterations of those were using local um, pieces of wood uh, that I put the beaks on so that they were in a, a kind of configuration of a forest. And the idea was that, uh, that they were kind of phantom limbs, that basically the, the beaks were there as though they were something that was missing their body. Uh, but the beaks were there and the sounds were there. And it's kind of the opposite of how Rachel Carson imagined Silent Spring, that the, the voices of the birds and other animals would be gone. In this case, the voices were kind of present, haunting the space. Uh, I went up to Alaska, uh, both to Anchorage and Fairbanks, and visited the scientists who were working on this. And I had an opportunity to, uh, to do the same installation there, which was great, because they were very excited and uh, and it took part during a large international orthodontological conference, and I've probably got that word wrong. <laughs> uh, and, but what was exciting is I had this invested audience, uh, and they were really excited about the work and excited about trying to see what could be done next. I managed to be able to go up to uh, Fairbanks to go research and draw initially um, these little stuffed birds that had all of these different kinds of beaks. Uh, and, and then I decided to make a stop motion animation of them. And, uh, and with that, I removed the um, sound of the uh, birds, the living birds entirely, and just made a loop, a very a kind of a spinning loop of the beaks. Uh, so visually it spins, but the sound also is this kind of, that kind of whirring sound uh, that eventually um, calls up a few bird sounds. Uh, that was included in exhibition with the other pieces. Uh, and, and then 
Uh, I exhibited that project also in Colombia at, at a conference called Balance Unbalance, and we had a large exhibition that was in the museum uh, where it was being held. And, uh, and there again, I had great participation from uh, local people gathering local wood. It was really important to me that whatever it went on would be local. Um, Colombia's a really major site for bird migration. Hmm. And so, um, so I didn't actually record birds there, but, uh, but I did manage to be able to get uh, some kind of uh, sense for the audience of, of uh, that kind of situation that might be relevant to them. And the audience for that particular symposium and conference was um, a combination of artists, scientists, people who are interested in issues around climate change. So that was kind of an underlying thread to all of these projects was uh, what is changing in our, our environment that might be potentially making changes for the creatures that inhabit those environments, not right. just people. Right. Now, I want to go back to something you said. Um, you said that it was important to, to have uh, the, the materials collected and used locally. Um, I think I know why, but I'd like to know, I'd like to know why you made that decision. Well, one, one aspect of that, of course, especially in Colombia where there were students involved and up in Alaska where there were students involved, I wanted them to feel like they had some way that they were contributing to the work that they could make choices, um, that they had some kind of investment in the piece as well. And also just to bring it back to that these situations that seem global, that seem distant, you read about them in journals or online, they're actually local. Yeah. So. Yeah. So it's sort of like part of, it's part of the overall artistic message that you're trying to relay. It's just, it's just so interesting to me that, that, um, you know, all, all the thought that goes into this work, a lot of people... I don't have to tell you this twice. You, you've obviously been in the art world longer, longer, and and know more about it than than we do. But um, people probably think that sometimes artwork can be a little bit arbitrary. And it's it's interesting to have you on the show today and talk to me just even about this one project that you've done, and you've done so many, and how non-arbitrary every detail really is. Like, it's it's amazing. So. Well, yeah, thank you. I think that's one way that some artists work is this heavy research-oriented process. So that's one reason I really embrace the term research creation because it really implies process uh, and not necessarily predictable outcomes. So, uh, so that's the way I tend to work and the way I've always tended to work. Uh, but I actually really value some of that improvisatory work <laughs> <laughs> yeah true like like you don't know what to yeah. expect like you sort of have an outline but you don't know like well are we gonna find enough of this wood are we going yes. to, right <laughs> you know, it kind of yeah. I guess it does leave a little bit open to interpretation so that's good but so you said you had a really good um audience like like you had a good you had a good turnout for this so what were some of the like, did you, did you get the reaction that you were expecting? Were people asking a lot of questions? Yeah, people definitely were asking questions. I had the good fortune up in Alaska to have the scientists who were working on this initial, you know, especially the scientist who worked on the initial article that I had read that just turned me around. Hmm. Um, Colleen Handel was there. And 
she was the one who kind of took me around and, and uh, introduced me to people who were working in this area or even drove me, drove me out to a few places where I might be able to see one. Uh, and I did end up photographing some birds um, in situ. I didn't include it in the project. I don't know if that will become something or not. Um, but, uh, but knowing that I had that kind of uh, engagement meant that we could have a dialogue together about this with other people present. And so that took place um, at the opening for the exhibition. Uh, we spoke about the piece together uh, as a collaboration of sorts. And, uh, and, and then we just took questions from the audience. And that tended to be a really general audience as well as that very engaged science audience. Yeah. I, yeah. That, uh, that, that's kind of what I was wondering too, is like, did you have sort of a, a target audience there where it was a lot of people who were interested in, in maybe like beak disorders or maybe just like birds in general. Um, so it was, it was pretty much like either scientific, uh, audience or general audience, you would say like a pretty even split. It's interesting because with the scientists, I didn't know what to expect. Yeah. Uh, when I was in Colombia, the kind of audience and discussions I had there were much more general about climate change. Mm. They were about uh, the things that we have to be aware of, that we have to research and notice uh, and, and try to address uh, as much as possible in our work if we're doing work that has some kind of uh, relevance towards issues of environment. And, uh, and so there I had very different conversations and it was a different kind of investment. Uh, in Alaska, they there were definitely those people there um, who were interested in that, uh, both within the scientific community and within the local community of eco-activists or whatever. Uh, but the, um, I'd say the scientists, you know, had all, all kinds of other things that they were engaged in. And what came out to me a lot uh, through our conversations was their humanity, you know, their empathy uh, towards the, the, th the animals that they work with. It's not s strictly birds. Um, they're working with all kinds of creatures that are affected uh, by the changing environment. Right. So they would, yeah, it yeah. really, it, it was, it served as purpose in yes. your eyes, right? Because it was impactful to, yes. to the audience in, in more than one way. So that's awesome. I'm I'm glad to hear that there there was a scientific audience that that turned out. Yeah, that's, that's a treat. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Well, that's something that I like reading about your work. Um, I find it very inspiring because the courage it would have taken to approach, um, you know, like a, an expert in something like this and say, "Hey, I I would love to to do, you know." Um, an installation. I, I, I'm an artist and I, I want to spread awareness about this. Um, you, you never know what their reaction is going to be. They might say, get away from me. I'm busy. <laughs> like, yeah. like the fact that you had this idea, you had the courage to approach people like that just shows really how important the message is to you and the, you know, the relaying of that is. So what was your experience? Like, did you, did you just Google these people or did you, did you like hear about them and were there people that didn't respond to you at first or like, like what was your experience like reaching out to these scientists? Well, I was very lucky because the first person I reached out to 
was Dr. Handel. <laughs> and I had read her article, um, which was written with um, uh, Carolyn Van Hamert. I think I've got her first name wrong. Uh, and, and various other people who work in their labs. Uh, but she was the lead um, PI on that. Um, and it was really uh, a, just a shot in the dark, you know, because I wasn't sure... I thought at the very least, perhaps she'll connect me with some people who will like be interested in an artist kind of coming on board in some way, you know, and I, and I absolutely did not want to insert myself into their research. That's their work, and it's really important work. Uh, I wanted to do something parallel and in a dialogue with that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. And I'm sure she saw that you're uh, your intentions were pure and that's why she was more than happy to help you. So that's, yeah. that's awesome. That's awesome. So I want to know, I guess what, uh, what, what came out of this? Like, did any repercussions come out of this that you maybe weren't expecting or that you were pleasantly surprised about, or like, is there any action that, that your, that your installation or that your message or these discussions that you've held, has anything sort of come from it? Like any follow-up or change in the community? I, th I think uh, with, in that respect, uh, the, the follow-up, I was wondering, where can I take this project next? And I really actually wanted to follow the science. And, uh, and there's been some interesting kinds of ways that they have had to diverge. You know, they've discovered that there may be a parasite, but they have to be very... Uh, to approach it with some trepidation mm -hmm. in terms of saying, oh, this has to do with climate change. They can't do that until they have the evidence. Until they're 100% certain. Yes, yeah, absolutely. exactly. Yeah. So, but of course, you know, everything seems to make sense that the, there's suddenly uh, this widespread phenomenon that, uh, that also has, uh, you know, a very likely... Um, relationship to a much more widespread uh, presence of a particular parasite. Um, how is that happening unless there is a climactic uh, allowance for those to be there in larger quantities? So, so, you know, they're the ones who are the scientists. They'll come up with, you know, the understanding. Uh, and then uh, I would assume uh, some suggestions for action. So where I go next with it is really going to be dependent on what I see there, mm -hmm. uh, because I would like to continue this project in some way, uh, but but I will I definitely am moving on to other things, of course, uh, but uh, I do see it as related to a lot of my other work. Yeah. Well, that's great. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. I I since since we're already on the topic, I'd love to hear about your uh, um, speaking of of the rest of your work. I'd love to hear about your other project uh, to do with, with the geese um, and the live stream of the geese. So I want to know, was that, um, like, did that come before? Did that come after? Was that inspired by? Um, yeah, tell us a little bit about that one. Well, um, this is a, a project I've been involved with for a few years uh, called Ravai, uh, and it's run by an artist group in the U.K., uh, which is basically, they basically organize this live stream that takes place uh, online on International Don Chorus Day, or, uh, which is May 1st. Um, 
at the crack of dawn everywhere around the world. <laughs> <laughs> and so through this, uh, through this website called Lucas Sonus, uh, you can go on there and find live streams all over the world. So I had a live stream going through Locus Sonus. Um, and the first one I did, it was actually out at Elk Island. Oh, okay. Uh, and that was pretty crazy because I was there doing the live stream of the Dawn Chorus. It tended to be more frogs <laughs> than birds. <laughs> so you have all these ribbons. <laughs> yeah, but because it's a live stream, I didn't even think to record it at the time. It was the first time I did it. Okay, yeah. And then as soon as I packed up, I, uh, right where I had been sitting, a herd of bison came in. And so I was very happy to have packed up <laughs> and, and uh, gotten slightly away from there and just watched this herd of bison come in. It was their breakfast yep. uh, drink to come in and, <laughs> and sip at the little uh, slough that, they, uh, that I had been sitting next to. And, uh, and that was really, really great. So then I've done it uh, not every year, but probably every other year. Um, with this group, and uh, and the last time I did it, um, which was a couple of years ago now at this point, uh, almost as of May, um, was down in Horlack Park. Okay, yeah, yeah, and that's within the uh, ward here called Papa Stew. Right. Yeah. So I named it uh, Papa Stew Geese Call. Yeah, and uh, and I was really thinking about. Uh, about the particular moment that we were in. So I wonder if I can read something. Absolutely. That, We'd yeah. love to hear it. Yeah. So this was from the website uh, for it where you'd have information. And I did this project. This time I invited two collaborators. I invited um, uh, Shinoa Anderson, who's a local flautist, um, and she was playing the ocarina. Uh, and Ian Crutchley, who's a composer, he was playing mechanical sound makers, some toys. Sound wow. makers, yeah, and I was streaming sounds that I had recorded, uh, and mostly text and voice and processed. But uh, the very first thing that happens with these streams is that not we don't participate; we let the dawn chorus happen. So that's all the animals and birds waking up, going down to the water or whatever they do at that time, and it starts out little bit quiet and then there's suddenly this cacophony of sound that's pretty amazing. So um, so here's what I wrote. Uh, During times of lockdown and the pandemic, sounds of birds and other wildlife were reminders of who we share our spaces with, of the lives and species humans often take for granted. After spending many months inside here in northern Alberta during the pandemic, the sound of the returning Canadian geese was like the ringing of a thousand bells waking us up from a cruel year of physical, political, and emotional turmoil. The birds remind us that life will go on, even without us, that borders formed by our political minds are not theirs. If we watch and listen, we can see the geese skating on the wet ice of the lake, ducks and geese plunging into the open waters, follow a muskrat foraging along the lake shore, and hear woodpeckers rattling the sides of dead trees. If we stay into the night, we can hear the owls and coyotes howl. After the birds wake up for this dawn chorus day, we will respond to the bird with our sounds and questions. What did it look like from up there? Are we any different? How can you put your head underwater for so long? Wow, that, that's a way to put it. 
That's beautiful. Thank you very much for sharing that with us. I think it, the questions that emerged were so much about us as well, right? Absolutely. And about the pandemic. Well, and you said something that a lot of people, I think, uh, because the pandemic made us so fight or flight, I feel like it really put us on on edge and heightened our um, fight or flight response. We we weren't able to be like as present as we would have liked to. I think it just whether we wanted to or not, we were always having to plan, you know, for the future because of the pandemic. <laughs> uh, you know, or bashing ourselves. Why didn't I stock up on toilet paper three months ago when I was at Costco? <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> um, you know, the sound of the birds remind us that that things are going to move on and life goes on. And, and I like that because mm-hmm. um, when I was little, my, my mom used to tell me uh, that if I'm ever if I'm ever lost or I'm ever wondering, you know, what what's going on? Just listen. Just listen to your surroundings. Listen to outside because I grew up outside of the city. So listen to outside because you'll be able to tell like what's going on by what the animals are saying and what the birds are saying and what the crickets are saying, right? Like what sounds they're making. If you can't tell, you'll tell from them. So they'll, they'll always, they're consistent. Nature is very consistent, right? Like it's reactive, but it's consistently reactive. (laughs) That's really lovely what she said. Yeah. And I think it's relevant in so many ways, Uh, not only to a child who's lost, but to a planet that's lost. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, with that, with that beautiful, uh, with that beautiful statement, I think it's a good time to take a short break. But we will be right back. Looking for a great local place to grab brunch? Voted Edmonton's best brunch two years in a row. Pip is the place you need right now. Located in the heart of Strathcona, on the corner of 103rd Street and 83rd Avenue, you can make a day out of it by visiting all the other local treasures that White Avenue has to offer. Hello and welcome back. We are here with Leslie Sharp, um, who we have had the pleasure of having on the show today to talk about some amazing artwork that she's done um, in conjunction with some uh, some avian scientists. So, uh, Leslie, I uh, I was I was thinking about it and and your work with these scientists and um, you know you'd mentioned that that you had the pleasure of of, of sort of hearing back from the first person you approached and and uh, she was she was more than willing and eager to to help you out in your in, endeavor to to relay this information and make these these art installations. Um, I was sort of thinking about how you really you really serve a, a really important purpose in the work that these scientists are doing, um, and by that I mean you. You, you know, I'll use it, I'll say it like this. These scientists do amazing work and they are published and, and their work is, is read by a lot of people. But, uh, you know, the everyday, your everyday Joe, like I'm going to use myself as an example. I'm not reading academic papers daily. I'm not reading them even weekly. I probably not even monthly, but I hope none of my profs are listening to this. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, but what you've actually done is you've taken their work and you've showcased it in a way that is digestible to a different audience um, and a way that we can understand and, and not only understand, but we can be impacted deeply by what you've presented and the way you've presented it. Um, I think that, that it just, it just goes to show that like your, your role here is, is you have such an integral, integral role to play here 
in, 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 I guess, like making change. Um, and that, that goes into a lot of art, like art, a lot of artists I know, like their goal is to create an impact and create change. And so I think it's really great how you've, you've approached these people and, and you've appreciated the work that they've done and you're now taking, you're inspired by them and now you are inspiring others. Um, so I just wanted to say that, like, I think that's something that I think is really incredible and something that I think from what you have explained to me, the way you've been working and, um, yeah, just really integral. Thank you. Yeah, I, I never saw myself as somebody who would be reading scientific academic papers. <laughs> no kidding. And, and I have to admit that probably, you know, more than half of it goes over my head. Uh, I, my eyes glaze over when I see things that remind me of doing exams in high school. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, uh, but at the same time, you know, I was mentioning earlier that um, that they have a duty when they're writing papers to base it on evidence, base it on fact. But the people who are writing them are people, you know, and they absolutely must have some personal engagement with what they're working on. Uh, for research purposes, they probably have to keep it factual, but speaking to them in person, you can see their humanity, their empathy, uh, and their goals, their desires. So, uh, so I found it always really important uh, when I'm doing a project, no matter what it's been, uh, that has some kind of research element to allow myself to just go there in places there where I don't feel comfortable, uh, perhaps in reading a scientific paper, uh, and see what I can find. Uh, and, and you notice little things that, uh, within it that might take you someplace. And so a lot of the work that I've done in the past, and especially I say, I'd say just before I got into all this work, was very data-driven, and it was still around data around uh, animals, animal tracking, climate change, migration patterns, all kinds of things. But, um, but the data was always gathered by people who are engaged, uh, and I could take that data and then start to see if there's a place where there, there's something I can interpret and say something more. Yeah. And that's so powerful. Like, because, you know, I'll, I'll go back to uh, an important thing you mentioned about these, these researchers is, is they're still people and there's still so much humanity and, and people don't realize all the work that goes into research sometimes. Like, not that they don't think any work goes into it, but if you're going to research something, it's important that you have some type of connection to it, whether it's a connection that you love what you're researching or you are very adamant about changing or creating a change, right? So these people are obviously going to be very passionate about what they're talking about. And, uh, and yeah, so I, I, I can't imagine like the amount of control and, and, um, and whatnot, like when writing versus speaking, right? And they must've, you must've been a breath of fresh air because they were probably so tired of having to always watch what they're saying, right? Like, well, the facts state, right? But then this is a little bit more like, well, we're just trying to create change and we're trying to create impact. And this is sort of what I'm interested in. So it was more of an open conversation, like a, almost like a safer conversation to have with, with yourself because 
um, you were just so genuinely interested in these particular areas that they were also interested in. So, yeah, lately I've been reading, uh, starting to read some some science uh, behind watersheds. Oh, yeah, because uh, you know, another side to all this is these these uh, animals, birds, etc., are somehow related to land, and because I'm interested in um, in environmental issues. Um, obviously I'm interested in how that impacts land and habitat for animals. And so, um, so I started doing some uh, recordings initially, uh, on my first visit to the mountains after the pandemic, um, going up to the Columbia ice fields and just not even knowing what I was going to record, but starting something there and knowing that this might take me somewhere. Uh, and at the same time I had um, I was doing some of these workshops uh, that I had um, started to do with artists who were working with sound uh, internationally. And so I was doing some online workshops. Uh, and, uh, and I went up to the Columbia um, ice fields and started recording, and I've continued to do some recordings, and now I'm going to embark on a new project uh, that's around watersheds, uh, two watersheds from the Columbia ice fields. Hmm. Yeah. So, um, but now I'm starting to look at some science <laughs> and that's what I was beginning with. And, and, and with that, you know, I, at this moment, I'm just very open because I don't know yet where it's going to go. And also for the first time, I've started to look at things that are non-scientific writing okay. to, to, uh, see if there's some kind of influence there. So I was, I recently read, uh, Thomas Wharton's Ice Fields, which is has been around for quite a while. Absolutely, right? yes, it has. Yeah. yeah, I actually have a copy myself. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> so, how'd you like it? Loved it. Yeah, loved it. I I love. Um, I got really into for a while reading about um, and just learning about like a lot of the stuff that we have here in Alberta, um, because especially like the mountains, like being so close, we are so blessed. Even Elk Island Park is only like mm -hmm. a hop, skip, and a jump away. Um, so yeah, I got really into I got really into nature books for a while. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I must sound like a real nature nut. <laughs> you know, I've I've lived many years in New York City, so <laughs> I promise I spend time indoors too. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, but yeah, like that's such a wonderful book, and it, and what it taught me was uh, the idea of structuring a piece where uh, the structure of the glaciers themselves. Uh, give a sense of where you might go with particular aspects, and in his case, particular narratives. And, and all the narratives come back to really important things about land and, and colonization and all kinds of ways in which that whole environment was de redesigned for different kinds of purposes or, or utilized. And so, uh, so it's really, it was a really exciting moment to look at to read something that was entirely fiction based and and know that this was going to actually um, be a really interesting influence in where I go next. Yeah, yeah no kidding. And it's it it's it's interesting that that you mention all this stuff that you're that inspires you because that's another thing. People I think people have this misconception about about artists that um, you're just born with all these ideas and you just do them. 
<laughs> these are just your ideas and you're an artist. So you're weird and you're quirky and you just have all these ideas that you perform, but you actively like you actively look for inspiration and you actively seek out, um, things to like make your work the most impactful that it can be. And I think that's something that, that, uh, I think that's something important to say on this podcast, just, just for everybody yeah. who's listening so that they know, um, there's a lot. And that's another reason I'm really excited that you came on today is because there's just so much, um, I think misconceptions about, about artists and, and, uh, the things that they do and, and the things that they bring to community. And so I think, I think it's really interesting that you share your process in inspiration with us. So thank you for doing that. Thank you very much, and and I'm happy to share it. I, I think process is something that uh, people in every kind of creative discipline are engaged in and uh, uh, in creating their work. And and that process, of course, you know, might involve research of various kinds. Um, it might simply mean that research is trying to figure out if if this particular clay works, you know, or it might be something like reading a scientific paper that goes over your head. <laughs> But uh, but I think that for me, you know, there's there's those things. There's um, there's absolutely so many other artists who inspire me, um, whose work I'm really excited to see, hear, listen to, uh, view, um, experience in many ways. And uh, and then there's also um, the other side of being inspired is is the world around you. So. Mm -hmm. I have a woodpecker that's visiting the tree in the front of my house daily, <laughs> and it's just basically denuding the tree now. Mm -hmm. It's you know obviously the tree is dying. It's sad. So, but now it's home to a pileated woodpecker and a little downy woodpecker friend that follows the pileated woodpecker, and uh, and that's kind of inspiring to me that 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 tree that's dying is going to bring on this, you know, cycle of other kinds of life. Uh, and so that, that idea of that kind of cycle is really so important for me in terms of how I think about uh, making work that's around place and around environment and, uh, and watching how certain things don't change, obviously, uh, but certain things require change. Yes, I like how you use the the word require. Yeah, that's very important. And 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 the thing about the tree, I think I think that too. Like, it goes to show. Um, uh, it serves us like a reminder, like you said, that like, okay, the tree is dying, um, but the tree is serving. Uh, it's still serving a purpose to the very end, and the tree then will become, you know dead wood that will nourish the ground or like, I actually don't know if that's a true fact, but I'm just thinking out loud here, right? Like it's, it is really all connected and it's all, um, it, these patterns and these cycles that you mention and that you show in your work. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really good to know like how, and cool to know like how you get that inspiration, even just from looking out your front window. So, yeah. Uh, Leslie, that is, that's all I have for today. Did you have anything else that you wanted to add before we wrap it up or? I think, I think I just want to say something about that tree, et cetera, and thinking about the works that I did, you know, and I mentioned Rachel Carson, 
Carson and how she imagined a world without sound, a world without life. But I'm thinking too about uh, how in the post-pandemic world, we really welcomed the sound of life. We listened to birds we, uh, during the pandemic. That was our connection with things continuing, with knowing that life would go on with or without us. And I think that now I'm really thinking in terms of these sound works and the idea of presence that, and about that distorted, distorted beak, that maybe what we are going to have are sounds that we don't recognize, that we will have sounds that might be distorted, they might be different, but what's going to emerge is something that we don't know. Yeah, absolutely. What a, what a way to put it. <laughs> thank you very much for sharing that, sharing that with us here today. Um, and thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you. Uh, it's been a pleasure to hear about everything that, uh, that you've been up to and have uh, shared with us today. So, so thank you. Thank you. Well, uh, that is it for today's episode of Research Recasted. If you think that this podcast can change the world, you can visit Research Recasted on your favorite podcast platform to find new episodes every two weeks. Also, don't forget to check us out on Instagram at Research Recasted, where you can leave a like, give us a follow, or send us a message if you have any follow-up questions from today's episode. This has been Research Recasted, a knowledge mobilization podcast brought to you by the Office of Research Services and the Faculty of Fine Arts and Communications here at McEwen University. Research Recasted is hosted and produced by Megan Miskimen and Renette Schaubert. Music by Dylan Cave, sound design and editing by Renette Schaubert, with research, copy editing and scripting by Megan Miskimen. Our executive producer is Ray Barie. <laughs>